Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host, and this week we're doing something different. Uh, Over the last years, we've always had guests and occasionally have taken time to answer your questions. And right now seems like a good time to do that. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to put together a good uh, block of, of, of solicitation of questions to answer. However, we can do something a little bit different and look at some of the current events in the news and provide a little bit of a scientific overlay as to what's currently happening. The goal here, of course, is to give you the information you need to be better informed about COVID-19. And this will help you in your conversations and hopefully enlighten what is a very confused and nervous population. As we've seen in other situations, when people get emotional, they make bad decisions. And we've seen so many examples of ignoring the science of what's happening here, Uh, turning to charlatans, turning to, and I'm doing this from home, so you're probably hearing geese and ducks and chickens in the background. Um, We listen to, to, we hear so much from the people who are not experts but claim to be experts in a lot of really bad decisions are being made that may be hurting people, uh, probably are, and ultimately leading to less success in solving this particular dilemma. And so here's where we can uh, dig into some of the recent news stories. Uh, one of the big ones that's been out is, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, is this really just the flu? And there have been a number of articles written on this about how this is different from influenza and how it's the same. And a lot of what I'm going to cover here are the th- same things I've covered on a new podcast over on Genetic Literacy Project called uh, Science Facts and Fallacies. Over on Science Facts and Fallacies, I have discussions with Cameron English, and we talk about current issues in the news. And it's really a, it's a nice format, and I think it's really a good podcast. So check that out if you can. Now, um, going back to the story from Ricky Lewis, which was originally published on March 17, 2020, it was how there's confusion between what is the flu and what is COVID-19, or what really is called SARS-CoV-2. It's the name of the virus. Um, uh, COVID-19 is the spectrum of symptoms in the disease and the pandemic. And so the problem you see is that people always are referring to the flu incorrectly. You know, what is the flu? Well, I had a 24-hour flu. I had a stomach flu. I had some sort of something. And what flu means to somebody is really a bad cold, right? Most people who who say they had the flu, um, there's never been a case of influenza in the state at that time of year. So, you know, anyway. So the big difference is between the flu and SARS-CoV-2 is that they're two different pathogens painted with the same brush. And so this is 
um, why we need to know how they're the same and different. Both are RNA viruses. And so we know that viruses either use RNA or DNA as their genetic material. These are RNA viruses. Um, they're the ones that cause the common cold. You know, the, this brand of RNA viruses. Um, fevers like uh, uh, Marburg virus, Ebola, um, AIDS, rabies, dengue. Um, all of these things are RNA-transmitted viruses, or transmitted by RNA-based viruses. And the reason they're so notorious is they can mutate quickly because genetic material is in one strand. And the other big similarity between uh, SARS-CoV-2 and uh, influenza virus, influenza A virus, is that both are zoonotic, meaning they come through an animal intermediate. And uh, they can come from an animal intermediate. And if you go back to podcast number 225 with Ilaria Capua, she discusses as a virologist the steps that a virus has to take in order to become pathogenic pathogenic and intransmissible. It has to jump from animal to person, and then it has to be able to move from person to person. And those are two criteria that, that a, in quotes, good you know, and, and a, a virus has to be able to take. Both the SARS-CoV-2 virus and influenza A virus, they do have some other similarities. They both cause fevers, coughs, coughs respiratory symptoms. They can lead to advanced pneumonia, body aches, fatigue, all that kind of stuff, along with things like vomiting or diarrhea. And the severity ranges from person to person and depending upon other factors. So that's you know, very similar in many regards. And that's why there's been so many tests and so many negatives. You know, we're still dealing with a population that can uh, vaccinate itself from influenza A but fails to do so and a vaccine that only has partial efficacy. So we're seeing a lot of overlap of similar symptom spectrums that, um, that are occurring at the same time and uh, being treated uh, very differently because of uh, the, the inability to control the one, uh, you know, with vaccines. Now, both influenza A and COVID-19, they're both spread through air droplets and respiratory droplets, which are transmitted by coughing, sneezing, um, talking. <laughs> uh, anytime we're out, uh, you know, breathing, uh, you're, you're emitting aerosols. And these aerosols... Um, can produce, well, or carry the, the virus for many hours, and, and it can remain viable for many hours. Um, so this has been something that's been studied well, and even on surfaces, persists for a significant amount of time. Um, you have to be careful when looking at the literature or, or listening to the news, because they say it is uh, alive on surfaces for X number of days. Well, first, viruses aren't really alive. They're viable. And um, it also is a question of can you detect it or is it viable? That, those are the two big questions. Some of these reports have said, well, we can detect it on a surface five days later. Yeah, you can detect it because you can identify the RNA component, which is, very sensitive, uh, which is a very sensitive test, very easy to do. For, again, for both of these disorders... All you can really do is treat the patient and uh, support the patient, whatever that means. Maybe it's rest, maybe fluids, maybe it's getting on a ventilator. But the bottom line is you got to ride out the illness. There's no, no easy way around that. 
And that's why this has become such a distressing point for the U.S. healthcare system and for politicians and others involved is because it's very difficult to be able to predict how big of the demand will be for those healthcare services. And that's, you know, we'll talk about this more in a little bit. Now let's talk about some of the differences that are happening with respect to these two, these two different viruses. Both of them have different reservoirs, meaning that influenza usually originates in birds, passed through other animals, humans. A coronavirus um, reservoir appears to be bats. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are eating bats in different parts of the world. People, you know, people have said to me, how can they eat bats? It's like, it's, you're starving, it's a protein source. You know, it's, it's pretty good. Um, a lot of people in many parts of the world do not have access to whole foods, believe it or not. And, you know, you find a bat that's dead on the ground, recently kind of warm, you know, and you're cooking dinner. And uh, that's how these things can move from the wild into humans. And humans encroaching in bat territory also leads to humans um, having more access to bats. So there's a lot of things going on here. Um, Pangolins, the scaled mammal, um, is also considered to possibly be a reservoir for COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. And uh, this is a scaled mammal that's considered a delicacy in some parts of Asia. So, um, the big differences, other big differences, uh, SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus virus, is a plus strand virus, and influenza A is a negative strand virus. So, as you think about this, the way in which the genetic material is translated into proteins uh, happens in different ways, in terms of the orientation of the molecule. Um, just another difference there. Genome size is really different. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 has uh, 29,811 bases. Influenza A is only 13,588, so it's about half the size of the SARS virus. It's also the number of genes that are present or the number of proteins that are encoded. Um, if you look at this one, influenza A has uh, 12, or no, 13, 13 proteins, just enough to get the job done. And so this is the hemagglutinin or neuraminidase. These are the H and the N numbers, you know, the H1N1, H1N5. These are the numbers that are, um, are represented by the proteins encoded by influenza virus. Coronavirus, on the other hand, has 20 different genes, and 16 of them are structural parts. The rest are enzymes that are involved in making more virus. So um, the, the S proteins, these are the, the projections that make the crown, which is the name corona, right? These are the projections that stick out that have multiple parts of attachment and penetration. Um, these identify what are called the ACE2 receptors. They're the receptors that are rich in the lungs, uh, in the stomach, in other tissues throughout the body. So this is where the coronavirus shakes hands with the cells in the discrete tissues of the human body. Now, public health officials are also debating how deadly is this relative to standard influenza. And many health officials will tell you they're building the plane as they're flying it. Um, we don't know these numbers you don't know how many people actually are carriers, how many people are asymptomatic, how many people it comes and goes, and you never know. So until people can be tested, 
we don't know the denominator of that equation. So that's where we are um, in, in terms of understanding um, what this is and, and its real death rate. And that's the other reason they're telling people stay clear of each other. You know, we don't know. So let's just get more data, figure out where we are. The other story that we covered um, was from Defense One, which is a defense magazine, which, you know, I read all the time, um, <laughs> from March 16th by someone named Patrick Tucker. And um, it talks about the presence of a vaccine. Where are we relative to a vaccine to protect people preemptively from this virus? And what's really interesting about this and the take-home message is, here is an example of how fast we can respond to a new viral threat. And it comes from a company called Medicago. And I've visited Medicago, really, really cool company. What they do is they use plants as a basis to generate uh, vaccine proteins or antibodies, whatever you want to produce in the plant. And they use transient transformation. So the idea that you can take agrobacterium tumefaciens, so the bacterium that does the genetic exchange with a plant, we talk about this all the time in genetic engineering, and agrobacterium can in inject a little piece of DNA into the cell of a gene of interest, and then the cells will make the material or make, you know, will process that DNA, translate it into the protein that you're interested in. Why this works is because you don't need to integrate the DNA into the genome of the organism in order to have it work. All you need to do is get that DNA in the cell and let the translational machinery take over from there. And so that's exactly what happens in the Metacago example. Uh, they're able to use these plants on a massive scale to take the sequence of, of SARS-CoV-2 that was released, released by the Chinese uh, last year, you know, days after it was identified, and now take that sequence and start to manufacture the antibodies to it, or the pro, you know, to, or in this case, they're actually taking the sequence and manufacturing probably proteins associated with the surface of SARS-CoV-2, and introducing these to the body, and, and teaching the body that this is what this thing looks like. You develop immunity against it. So they're producing these in plants, which is really cool, because you're using plants as a bioreactor and reactor instead of eggs. And they can have a, what well, would potentially be a, a vaccine very quickly. Now, the reason this is important is it's not necessarily how this will affect SARS-CoV-2. But imagine if there was a weaponized virus, which could happen. Imagine if there was something that was more transmissible and more deadly. It may be worth it for us to generate vaccines on the scale of weeks rather than years. And this could be something that is a viable op option in the future. So um, at least the, we could vaccinate the most vulnerable. Um, this seems to be probably what will happen with SARS-CoV-2. It's going to be a while before it's uh, accepted or passed for approval. But nonetheless, this is probably going to be a therapy that we'll see in the near future. We're about at the halfway point. Two more coronavirus stories to go. Let me take a quick break here, grab a drink of water, and we'll be back with you with more of the special coronavirus edition of the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. 
Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. This week at 11 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, you can join Dr. Folta in online lessons for children, first through sixth grade. He'll cover topics like viruses, DNA, where did cows come from, what are pesticides, and many other exciting topics. That's over on Fulta's professional Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash KM Fulta again every day except weekends at 11 a.m. You also can hear him discuss the news of the week with Cameron English over on the Genetic Literacy Project Science Facts and Fallacies podcast. They cover the hot story, the breaking news, and break down the information and add their enlightening and sometimes interesting commentary. All of the expanded dedication to public communication is made possible because of your support on Patreon. Thanks for helping there, and thanks for sharing the stories of science with others. Now back to this week's special report. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're talking today on a special edition about SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the coronavirus, and talking about some recent stories in the news in order to have a better handle on what this is, what it isn't, and ways in which we're going to be able to communicate what's happening with the people we know who, we, who may be a little bit apprehensive and nervous because of the situation. They've been to the grocery store. They can't find toilet paper. Their world is collapsing. Um, so, you know, let's give them a little love here. Okay, here we go. So the second part of, of this uh, special edition, we'll start with a, a story from Steven Salzberg. Steven Salzberg is a very well-known scientist. He did a viewpoint that says, watch out for charlatans and scammers touting coronavirus cures. And this was in the March 25th edition of Field of Science. And the first thing he talks about is that there is no cure. So anybody who thinks that they have a cure or that they read it on the internet there's a cure or that they've uh, identified a cure, there is no cure. Right now, no cure, period. However, when you look at uh, people who have um, chosen to take advantage of this opportunity to peddle their garbage, you see that there are a number of products that are being sold, and whether it's colloidal silver, essential oil-based opportunities, whatever. Um, there's a lot of claims being made, and we could have predicted this. The question you have to ask yourself when you see a bogus medical claim or an outlandish medical claim, let's not make a judgment yet bogus or not, but an outlandish medical claim is, are these people stupid or, uh, well, I should put it this way. <laughs> um, are, they, are they just ignorant to the facts or are they being deceptive? And the question is always stupid or liar. You know, that's the question that you have to ask yourself when someone is making a claim that's completely wrong. Are they willfully trying to deceive or do they just don't know? And I think that's a really important distinction because it gets to their intent. If you just don't know and you're background and your experience and your minimal knowledge is giving you some sort of a, a to create some sort of nostrum to try to help people 
Well, okay, you know, I can give you a partial break there because you don't know what is actually happening. You don't have know enough to be, you know, you're in the Dunning-Kruger zone. You don't know enough to realize you don't know. And there's a kind of innocence to that. You know, we can't get too crazy about, about that. The ones that I get really upset about are the people who are ignorant of it and when trying to correct them and help them understand are recalcitrant. So dealing with the ignorant is a two-step process. It's identifying that they're ignorant and that they're not being deceptive and then trying to correct them. And if they, if they are completely digging in their heels in that second part, then they become uh, an, an object of scorn and derision. <laughs> um, the other classification here, the folks who we talk about as being deceptive. Now that is willingly deceiving people. That's causing problem. That one for me is a big red flag. And so the idea of correcting them very publicly is something else all of us should be doing. So while we're trapped in isolation and hanging out at home, I would hope that you would step into this, this these discussions online, talk to people, call out the bad guys, You have to do it to protect the innocent and the people who don't know who are falling prey to these charlatans. So, now that we've established the stupid or liar formula, right? Okay, here we go. Um, We know that the FTC and the FDA have both really come down as hard as they can. Um, They're not an enforcement agency. They've written um, advisory letters to a number of places um, that are selling colloidal silver, uh, um, herbs, supplements, aroma, uh, aromavirus, aromatherapy. Um, they that they have been advised with a letter from the FDA to stop, and some of them have, some of them haven't. We know that Twitter has become increasingly better at stopping these organizations. So something um, called uh, Quinescence, um, they have shut them down. Uh, others are still going. And, you know, they're, they're hawking colloidal silver, uh, saying that it, 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 it stops antibiotic-resistant bugs like Zika, viruses, superbugs, the flu. You know, this is the stuff right off their website. Um, others are, are uh, still allowing the Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts to main, be maintained, even though they're selling bogus cures. So this is the problem of where we're at. Um you know, I could go into detail on this further, but I think we're just going to let it slide. We should mention Jim Baker. So Jim Baker, he was the televangelist who kind of looks like an old me. <laughs> um, he was the guy who in the 1970s and 80s was convicted of 24 counts of financial fraud. He went to jail for five years. He comes back to TV in 2003 and still is active on television. And one of the ways he's making money is by selling this colloidal silver stuff, which has no way to cure anything, let alone a coronavirus. So um, they've actually, the FDA, FTC, New York Attorney General, they gave an order for him to stop doing this. We'll see how that works out. Um, The state of uh, Missouri, they even went further and they're actually suing him to stop him from harming people. And, you know, my hat's off to the Missouri Attorney General. Um, 
Uh, they, they even said here that this, here's a quote from the Missouri Attorney General falsely promising to consumers that Silver Solution can cure, eliminate, or kill or deactivate coronavirus and or boost the elderly's immune system and keep them healthy is it, when there is, in fact, no vaccine, pill, potion, or product available to treat or cure the coronavirus in 2019. So there you go. Uh, they say the 29 disease anyway. So. Um, that was really helpful. And then Salzburg also points out Alex Jones, who claims he has a toothpaste that can kill the SARS coronavirus. Um, Alex Jones has also been advised by the New York Attorney General to shut down his fake operation. So here we go. Um, you know, the question you always want to ask is, are they are they willingly deceiving or are they just clueless? And uh, I think you'd have to step in as someone with science interest, step into those conversations hard. If you have never blogged in your life, it's a great time to start. You know, this is a place where we can help other people by sharing science. And so that's why I'm doing this today. That's why you need to do it too. The last part of the thing I'll talk about today is an article by David Katz that was in the New York Times, my favorite paper. Um, And it was, are the coronavirus containment efforts more damaging than the direct toll of the virus itself? Now, you can see politicians, maybe the president himself, sitting with, you know, two choices in front. Um, You know, crash the economy and cause significant hardship for many people, or um, cause medical hardship and widespread death and possibly have to make decisions about who lives and dies because the medical system is stressed. And these are two tough decisions. And when you're at that precipice of which one are you going to choose, politicians in this case, um, you know, we can argue whether it's right or wrong, um, chose the shut down everything, isolate everybody. This is the guidance that we got from the White House and from federal government. That's great. Um, probably the best move, most conservative move, with a little c. Um the idea of, of causing the kind of widespread situation by shutting down everything does put incredible stress on the economy. And so what Katz talks about is, can we think about hybrids, especially going forward, hybrid models of doing this? And so according to Katz, and what he thinks is that the, well, what we know is that the vulnerable population is really over 60 and really over 70. As you get older, this is more of a problem. So could you... Um, simultaneously get flatten the curve by protecting the vulnerable and maintain an economy. And I think that's really where he's going here. That test that high-risk group first, identify who's got the disease, treat them first, give them the antivirals we have, uh, take care of the sick, get the rest of them in isolation, and then just let the rest of the, let the disease run wild through the rest of the population and treat the people who become ill. And the idea is here is to give everybody immunity simply by experiencing the disease. And when you don't have uh, you don't have the vaccine, you don't have widespread testing. He's thinking this could be the best way to do it. And so that was his basic idea that you know restaurants would open, bars would open, you would have normal access to services, and you wouldn't tor- totally torpedo an economy, a national economy as well as personal economies. A lot of people really hurting here. Because you wouldn't be shutting down everything. 
And right now it's a little too late to turn on a dime on this, but it's, but like the first story where we started to talk about um, the differences between the flu and, and and the virus, are there hybrid situations that we could pursue here? And uh, in in the next time there is a necessity for a response, rather than uh, having a choice of one or the other, maybe thinking about identifying the most vulnerable, giving them the best frontline treatments that maybe come from Medicago, you know, being able to respond quickly to disease, and then uh, the rest go about your business and understand that we're going to be transmitting this from person to person. Um, so maybe that is something that, you know, some folks would think about. Of course, ethicists would say we have an obligation to protect the uh, to everybody and that nobody should die of this. And certainly healthy young people are dying from this. But how many people will experience irrecoverable, uh, you know, the word I'm going for there, um, will not be able to bounce back from this because the loss of jobs, uh, jobs that they won't have back, um, credit records, all that kind of stuff destroyed because of uh, uh, missed payments and missed mortgages, homes that may be repossessed. There's going to be a lot of fallout from this that's going to be really ugly. Numbers of businesses that may never reopen. Um, that kind of thing is uh, very likely. And so I think there's going to be a new field of uh, economic epidemiology where these things will kind of dovetail. And that you'll find uh, people who are going through and sorting out what will be the impacts if, and then identifying kind of the nexus of the risk and the benefit, both for the economic side and the epidemiological side. And so I think that's really was, really I distilled down Katz's ideas there, maybe even took them a little further, but uh, that seems to be uh, the majority of, of what he was getting at. The other big part of this is that you're shutting down schools. And kids are losing their access to education. I know that we've done our best to keep universities afloat. But these are the things that are happening during these times. And maybe these need to fit into that equation too. So the economic and educational fallout versus the epidemiological progression of a viral disease in a population. And how do you weigh those and how do you make those decisions? And it could be something that really... um, AI can sort out for us so that we don't have to have humans making that decision. And now we start getting into the world of, you know, Blade Runner and Gattaca, right? But, you know, there is a point here that we're going to have to have a better way to make these decisions because we were blindsided by this thing. I mean, there's no question that this country was not ready for what was coming. And, um, you know, maybe going forward, there's things that we could do a little better. And I think that's very true. I would love to hear the president and politicians saying that too. Instead, they're saying perfect 10, everything's great, stuck the landing, everything's great, no problem. I think what we need to be hearing from our leadership is we are learning as we're doing, and we're doing our best to take care of everybody. Unfortunately, our best will never be good enough in a case where you have this kind of an opponent. And the way to solve the problem is to put our trust in science, put our trust in reason, take care of each other, do our best to help the most vulnerable, and that is how we'll best survive. So, you know, that's a good way for us to end here. So for those of you who have been listening, thank you very much. I apologize for the strange episode. 
My uh, interview with Jeffrey Cabot is at a computer at work I don't have access to at the moment. <laughs> um, we've been uh, told to stay out of the building unless it's uh, other other things that are urgent and I'm not scheduled to be there at this time. Uh, we have some other interviews in the pipeline and I promise a bunch of good ones this week. I did mention weeks ago that if we were able to get people to sign up on Patreon, we'd start some other types of media. And that's happening. I am doing the podcast over on Genetic Literacy Project with Cameron English uh, once a week. Uh, it's called Science Facts and Fallacies, where we go through news stories like we do here uh, today. And um, the other thing we've done is uh, I'm teaching class every day at 11 o'clock on Facebook Live. So Facebook Live for the time being over at uh, Facebook Live KM Folta, not Kevin Folta, but KM Folta, which is my professional account. We're doing uh, some sort of lesson there on a daily basis. And it's been kind of fun. We've gotten great reviews, thousands of people attending, so very good there. And lots more in the pipeline. So thank you very much for your support. It's allowed me to hire some folks to help with the production of this episode. This one I'll have to do myself today. So thank you very much for listening. Um, Keep me in mind if you have any questions or anything I can help with, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you very much. Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Folta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.